All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to be with you again, speaking to you from New York City on this, the 24th day of July, 2018. We uh, do want to thank you for listening to this show, and I also want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show RN Resources, Balmoral Resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., Northern Empire, and Novo Resources. Next week, I'm happy uh, to announce that Great Bear Resources will join this show as a sponsor. I'm very excited about this stock, uh, which is a, a recommendation in my newsletter. Uh, and I'm really happy about uh, about its consistent exploration success that it's having uh, in, uh, it, in its project in Red Lake, Ontario. In addition to its consistent drilling campaign, consistent successful drilling campaign, the fact that the company has less than 25 million shares outstanding and a minuscule market cap tells me that in percentage terms, I think it has uh, some pretty big upside potential. We underscore, of course, the word potential. Um, that's the nature of exploration companies. As with all the companies that are sponsors, Great Bear, uh, as I say, is a recommendation in my newsletter, and I own it personally. Uh, so if you would like to know more about that company, as well as others, like, um, uh, well, all the other sponsors, as well as a lot of others that I cover in my newsletter, you're invited to subscribe to my newsletter. You can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 in New York City. I've titled today's uh, show, Mark Faber is Back. Well, Mark Faber and Peter Talman return as guests today. Michael Oliver will not be with us today. I'll talk a bit more about Michael in just a minute, but... For now, let me say that it's unfortunate that hate speech, so termed, arbitrarily defined and dictated by the left-wing socialists, is suppressing free speech and the search for objective truth. At least that's my view of things. The phrase, thank God white people populated America, uttered by Mark Faber, might have been said in a less offensive manner, but to remove the truth-seeking thoughts of a freedom-loving Non-racist intellectual of Mark Faber's stature is unconscionable, in my view, and ultimately destructive, most of all, uh, to the minorities. Because I believe very firmly that Mark is devoted to seeking the truth, I am delighted to have him on the show this week. He will be with me during the second half of today's show for about 30 minutes, actually. 
I'm looking forward to him for an honest commentary and insights into the chronic trade deficits that the U.S. has faced since Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. I expect Mark will have some great insights into that problem and other topics related to the decline of the people Hillary Clinton labeled as deplorables who ended up voting for Donald Trump. And I hope that Mark will provide some insights into what average people should be doing to protect themselves from the horrific problems that I believe lie ahead of us, thanks to our departure from the moral standards of our founding fathers, starting with the immoral monetary system that we have been forced to use since 1971. In just a couple of minutes, after we go to our first commercial break, Peter Talman, the president and CEO of Klondike Gold Corp., will be with me to update us on that on the significant progress that that company has been making uh, in exploring what I believe may well be the early stages of a very major gold discovery, that being the mother load for the millions of ounces of placer gold mined in the creeks and valleys during the great Klondike gold rush of the late 1800s. Uh, Peter will be with me, as I say, right after our first commercial break. As I said, Michael Oliver is not able to be with me today, but he is making a special offer to listeners of this show. Go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, click on Contact Sample Reports, fill in your name and mailing address, and write uh, in the space provided uh, that you heard the show, that on my show, that uh, you would like to request the MSA 360 Weekend Report. Selma, you listen to Jay Taylor's Turning Hard Times and Good Times. And you'd like to request the MSA 360 Weekend Report, which Michael will send to you free of charge. That would be from last weekend, July 22nd. In that report, Michael covered gold, the S&P 500, the German DAX, soybeans, corn, wheat, cotton, and crude oil. Of course, Michael has been very bullish on all those soft commodities. He has turned negative on crude oil, and he remains negative on the equity markets. However, he also remains definitively bullish on gold. If you get his report from last weekend, you may have a better understanding why he remains bullish on gold. Since this show has so much to do about gold, let me just tell you a tiny bit about what Michael had to say in his weekend report. He noted that it won't take much for gold to turn up on its weekly and monthly momentum oscillators. If gold can close above 1243 this week, Michael sees the corner being turned. Now with gold trading uh, shortly before this show began at 1225, Uh, I'm thinking we may not get there this week, but in his report, Michael shows us that if gold can close a day in August, in August, anytime in August a day, close above 1232 or higher, that would also be a turning point. And that's just a mere seven bucks or so away from where we are now. Again, in order to, uh, in order to get a free report from Michael, uh, that's the 22nd of July, his uh, MSA 360 weekend report. Go to OliverMSA.com and click on the contact sample reports to request that report. We do have to go to commercial break now, but if you want to learn more about an emerging gold discovery that has the potential, in my view, to be very big, that's for Klondike Gold and a company with a market cap of a mere $23 million in U.S. money, stick around to hear what Peter Talman has to say. He's the president and CEO of Klondike Gold. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Peter Talman. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. 
Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Peter Talman. Peter is the president and CEO and a director of Klondike Gold Corp. And through more than, I guess, more than 35 years of experience as an exploration geologist, he has had considerable amount of success, and uh, now he's bringing that, uh, his talents and his insights uh, into a project that has scarcely been explored professionally in the past, but to one of the areas that I think has one of the best, uh, one of the greatest potentials to uncover a sizable gold deposit, and indeed he's having a great deal of success in that direction, it seems, in the last couple of years. Uh, this is a company that trades in Toronto. Um, Klondike trades under the symbol KG. You can buy it in the U.S. as I have under KDKGF. I was selling at $0.24 cents in U.S. money a little earlier today when I checked, and that gives it a market cap of a mere $23 million in U.S. money or something like that. Very low-cap company with a lot of great upside in my view. So thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you, Jay. Well, it's uh, really good to hear from you again. You're up there on the project, I guess, up in the in the Great Klondike there. And um, you know, we I think it was June 12th when we last spoke uh, about a month ago or so. And can you give us an update, perhaps just a general update on what is the status of the Klondike Gold Exploration uh, Project right now? It'll be a long one because there's been a lot changed in the last 30 or so days. Uh, huh. I guess for for your listeners, we're doing two things. We're, for the first time ever, surveying the entire district. So we own, to recap, 570 square kilometers and all of the ground that the old 1896 Klondike Gold Rush gold fields lies on. Um, and so we began about a month ago when I was talking to you, full-scale surveying of the entire district with a bunch of different methods, flying airborne, soils, structural mapping, lithologic mapping. And as of today, we've finished the airborne. Uh, the results are pending, but I'm expecting to get that, that this week. Uh, the soils are done, and we're just beginning to get the first assay results back or the uh, geochemical results back from that. Lithologic and structural mapping has another two weeks to run, but uh, we have some significant results coming out of that program as well. And then on top of it, we've been prospecting, and we've made mm-hmm. two, certainly two new discoveries. Um, and discovery being 
We're finding lots of quartz veining and outcrop with visible gold, so we don't have assays, but um, those, those areas of veining tie into some of the structures that we've been seeing and mapping, um, and so that's really nice. And then the flip, the other side of it is we've been drilling since, I don't know, the, the end of May, um, and as of today, we've completed 44 holes and a total somewhat over 5,000 meters of drilling. That was what we announced we would do for the entire year. Um, what we, the drill program has gone incredibly well. We haven't had a hitch anywhere at all. And uh, so we're going to continue on. We have time and a lot of the summer left, so we'll, we'll have an expanded program. Um, and we've been testing two areas principally. It was a wildcat test of uh, a target area called Gold Run. I know, Jay, you were really yep. interested in this one. Yep. Um, it's six, 60 kilometers down the belt at the other end <laughs> uh, of the property um, on what we think is the same structure as our main target area, the Lone Star. Mm. Uh, and so we just went down and drilled four holes just to see what it would look like. Um, and... Now I also have the airborne and the regional mapping too, um, and it looks like Lone Star. Uh, so assays are pending. Um, we did see visible gold in in the drilling there. That really doesn't mean anything. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, the you know the visible gold occurs in narrow quartz veins. So even if it's there, we might not get a a, a number out of it, an assay number. What's critical here is that we find gold disseminated in the wall rock adjacent to the quartz veins. And, mm-hmm. and that concept of disseminated gold adjacent to quartz veins is absolutely new and mm-hmm. uh, is one of the reasons why we've had so much success. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, indeed. So, so you, then, you've... Okay, go ahead, Peter. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, you, you might want to ask a question now. Yeah, I was, just, I was just saying that you've drilled 44 holes. Uh, how many of them... How many of them have been released so far? How many have had the assays released so far of those 44? Seven. We just did it just, uh, last week. Last um, week. Okay. And we'll, get, and we'll get to that. I want to ask you about that. But you had something else to say with regard to the first question yet? Well, and then, then you know, so that was a wildcat shot with four holes, and then the other 40 have gone into Lone Star, which is the our principal target. Yeah. And and at Lone Star we have two point two and a half kilometers of gold either intersected already in a drill hole or in outcrop, so the total length of it mineralized zone is two and a half kilometers. We've drilled now taken a five hundred meter long segment of that and drilled it by two hundred and fifty meters, so five hundred by two hundred and fifty meters at a fifty meter mm-hmm. spaced center and mm-hmm. announced the first seven holes. Uh, as you just said, and the rest of them are pending. Uh, and that's really designed to give us a really good look at, A, the geology, uh, the distribution of mineralization, and we're looking for a kind of a, a, a good idea of what the average grade might be as well uh, out of this program. Mm-hmm. Well, you announced also some, uh, some assays from, that were from holes that were previously drilled, the reassaying program. To me, I, I, could you comment on that a little bit? To me, that, that is really exciting. I think you kind of alluded to it a moment ago when you talked about gold mineralization, disseminated gold mineralization in the rock adjacent to the, the higher-grade quartz veins. Uh, do you have more of those reassaying 
one of those uh, holes that were previously drilled yet to announce the assays from? Um, well, yeah, they're coming. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, the, the original reassay program was we recognized there was disseminated gold and then went, oops, mostly, um, in that in 2015 and 2016, we drilled holes at the nugget target, amongst others, that mm-hmm. we, where we just analyzed the quartz veins. And so we went back and basically reassayed, well, cut the entire hole and assayed that. And one of those holes, one of the first ones we did, came back. Um, the original announcement in the news release two years ago was that it was dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we reassayed it, we had a gram over 58 meters. <laughs> um, and uh, and so there's considerable amount of gold, not exactly where we were expecting it, but still in the in the target. Um, and there was another hole in that series where we had 2.2 grams over 25 meters. They're effectively equivalent in in ter- terms of gold content. Uh, we have about 40 drill holes to reanalyze. Hmm. We're about halfway through cutting them, but the precedence has been on getting the new assays from Lone Star cut, like uh, processing mm-hmm. those first. So whenever we can slot in time, when somebody isn't busy and they're really busy, um, they'll cut some more of these old holes. So that's where we're at with that. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like that, it seems like the market isn't paying much attention to it. I mean, to me, when you come out with a core 1.4 grams over 65 meters, that was a recent assay from the Lone Star target. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the market is looking for, you know, high grade and they're looking for multiple ounces per ton or what the heck they're looking for. But the stock went up prior to your announcements. And I said, oh, that's, you know, people are getting excited because they know there's going to be some assays coming out. But in fact, uh, as soon as what I thought was pretty good, pretty good results uh, the stock was hit pretty hard. What do you think's going on? Well, and uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I actually know just based on the calls that we got beforehand was when are the assets coming? When are the assets coming? And, <laughs> um, you know, it's like okay, we announced when the assays were coming. That that was a publicly known fact, so it was yeah. kind of hard to dodge it. Yeah, and, they wanted uh, to know minute by go. minute. They wanted to know minute yeah, by no, minute. Yeah, no, that's perhaps. what they want. Yeah, they don't want their um, money in there any longer than uh, yeah, yeah. Than it. <laughs> but I'll, I'll go back to you. Like that, what we had in the news release, one point four was over sixty-five meters. As a reminder, yeah. we've been drilling Lone Star for well, the first two holes were in twenty sixteen. I think we have forty or so holes in Lone Star zone that are like that hole. So this isn't mm-hmm. just one of them. We're mm-hmm. we're kind of accumulating a body of work here that says there's a significant amount of mineralization there. And the, the other thing is, it's not just low grade. That very hole you're referencing had six grams over eight and a half meters in it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it means that ultimately, so my the ultimate objective with Lone Star and really with the rest of the project is I want... <laughs> If it's low grade, I'm good with that. I want as many ounces as I can possibly get off the top because I do know there are high grade pockets in here and we can always go back and worry about upping the grade. We can do that by basically raising the lower cutoff or by finding and targeting some of these high grade veins because the Klondike is known for quartz veins that run an ounce. 
Um, so the first and first bigger picture from a corporate point of view is to get over that million ounce of stuff in the ground. You know, I want that number first uh, mm-hmm. before we start worrying about grade. It's just proved to the world that we have a lot of gold here. I think we, we are beginning to prove that. Um, and, and then we'll worry about kind of the economics of it down the road. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, with so much to shoot at, I mean, a 55-kilometer or 60-kilometer long, and, and you're suggesting, if I understood what you said a moment ago, Peter, that this may be one major system. I mean, it's not to say all the way along those 55 or 60 kilometers you're going to have a gold mine, but uh, it's a very, very major system from what I can from what I can discern from your press releases and so forth. Well, and and kind of the new breaking thinking from the structural end of it is that it's, yes, these structures definitely transect the entire district, um, and there are specific areas along it which are relatively better gold mineralized, potentially anyway, and we're beginning to see that in our soil data. So, And these areas are significantly large. So Quartz Creek, which we already knew about, that had a 20-square-kilometer golden soil anomaly that we still haven't got to yet. Hmm. Um, but that's in the middle of a... It's an interesting structural zone now that's been identified, and the lithologies are also unique or, or very similar to the Lone Star stuff. Um, and so we're, we're learning a lot from the regional program and applying it directly to discovering ounces just in the Bonanza and El Dorado Creek areas. All right, uh, with just about three minutes left or so, Peter, when do you expect to have a resource, and and what should people be looking forward to uh, the rest of this year in terms of drivers for the share price? Now, I'm a long-term investor. I watch this on an ongoing basis, but a lot of people are wondering what should they be watching for. Yeah, well, um, we're trying to – we're on – so we're paralleling what Kamenak did um, mm-hmm. And so that was a discovery in similar rocks, similar mineralization uh, that ultimately Goldcorp bought in 2016 for half a billion dollars. And their mm-hmm. program from start, they started with a soil anomaly and identified a fault system pretty much the same as ours and, you know, took it to a resource and then got bought out. So we have a timeline on that. This year we want to produce a, a, a 43101 independent geology report that will say, hey, there's potential here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really and as Kamenak did. And then from in Kamenak's timeline, it took him another two and a half years to produce a resource estimate. Um, for us, we're going to try, we're really doing stealth resource drilling right now. Um, it'll take all the way through next year for sure. And I'm not going to promise a resource at the end of 2019 um, because we may need 2020 drilling to get there, but we're, we're going to try for it without, without confessing it on the radio like I just did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Peter, uh, one of the things that I know is true, having been a veteran in this business for a long time, is that the pros aren't necessarily waiting for that 43101. And the guys in the big mining companies that start to understand the system, the geology, and the consistency of the mineralization, if it's there, uh, they don't have to wait for all the T's to be crossed and the I's to be be dotted before they start to get excited. And I know you've indicated before, the big boys are well aware of your project, and well, they should be given the size of this target, I would say. 
Uh, yeah, but there are technical hurdles that they, they need to check first before they become overtly and publicly interested. So one of mm-hmm. them would be a million-ounce resource. You need that. Yeah. Um, and so that goes to back to my comments. If we're going to try to get that as fast as we possibly can, it might look, you know, whatever way possible. Um, from there, then we can we can still push forward and advance, try to find more, but also try to upgrade things that look poor if that's if that's what comes out of it. Well, it's really an exciting story, and you have the funding to take you through this year. I understand, probably even though you're doing a more aggressive. Uh, drill program than you've initially thought you might. I would guess you got most of what you need probably for uh, for 2019. But I, I would also suggest and hope, at least as a shareholder, that as the market starts to focus on on the potential of this thing, that that it's going to bid the share price up. So if you do have to raise money, you'll do it at a much higher price than 24 cents in U.S. money right now. All of that is exactly the objective. Yeah, the biggest thing I'm worried about is to turn around the gold price because that would lift. Uh, all you know, all gold all the floors. Yeah. Um, and and balancing that against what we're going to uh, the increase in budget for this year, because um, that's going to take you know we have a little bit of cushion because I'm still promising to spend two and a half million bucks next year, which is the same mm-hmm. as what we're doing this year. Right. Um, but there you go. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll, well see how it works. Okay, Peter. We'll have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. Thank you so much for the update. It's an exciting story. Look forward to talking to you again in the near future. Well, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Mark Faber will be with us. Talk about some very important subjects about how you can protect yourself uh, uh, from the uh, coming storms in the economic environment, the markets, and so forth. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Mark Faber. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Mark Faber. Now, he is the author of the highly acclaimed Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report, which you can access at gloomboomdoom.com. 
Now, Mark is the author of several books, including Tomorrow's Gold, Asia's Age of Discovery, uh, which was first published in 2002. It is uh, a, a lot of recognition. Uh, it was on the bestsellers list for a while. But beyond that, Mark doesn't really need any introduction, though he has not been as frequently heard and seen on mainstream media as he used to be following his candidly positive view of Western civilization that caused him to be somewhat of an outcast among the politically correct left-leaning mainstream media. What seems to me these days that anything you say that disagrees with Democrats is automatically termed hate speech, and you may actually uh, be undeservedly labeled a racist. Now, if I thought that Mark Faber was anything other than a kind, generous, thoughtful, and highly insightful intellect, I would not have him on this show. And I believe all of those attributes certainly apply to Dr. Faber, so I'm really pleased to have him with us today. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show, it's and thank you for the introduction. Well, I, I believe it with all my heart. You know, I, I just think it's unfortunate some of the things that are going on right now in in, uh, in the United States in terms of a lack of freedom of speech and thought. We're not allowed to think for ourselves. We have to just take what and regurgitate what the professors and the universities tell us and then shut up. So uh, I'm, I'm very grateful, Mark, for all that you've done and for your for your Thank willingness you. to speak what you what you believe to be true. So now, Mark, um, since the Trump tariffs are very much in the news these days, I would like to start out by getting some of your views on that topic. Clearly, the U.S. has been running chronic trade deficits during the next starting with Nixon's move to detach gold from the monetary system in 1971, after which the petrodollar substituted for a gold-backed standard. This new monetary regime allowed those people who benefited from the welfare and warfare state to make significant gains at the expense of the middle class who lost their higher-paying manufacturing jobs. And it was this class of people living in flyover country in America that Hillary Clinton labeled deplorables, and they voted for Donald Trump. So Trump is elected, and those people elected him. Him, and he seeks, it seems to me, whether he's doing it, going about it the right way or not, is trying to reverse the trend that has really hurt the middle class in America. And I know that one of the things that both liberal and conservative economists have agreed on since the 1930s is that free trade is desirable. It's good for everyone, supposedly. But what are your thoughts about Trump's proposed tariff solution? And if you don't agree with uh, with rising trade barriers, what would be the solution to a problem that is clearly leading to growing levels of poverty in America and the destruction of the middle class? Yes, I think it's very important to analyze uh, what has led to actually rising trade and current account deficits in the U.S., which began actually not with China, but with countries like South Korea, Taiwan, and especially Japan, of course, in the 1970s. But actually, if we analyze why a country imports more than it exports, it has frequently to do with a lack of competitiveness. And then you ask yourself, well, why is there a lack of competitiveness? And the lack of competitiveness in manufacturing especially arises because there is not enough capital spending and too much consumption. You see, an economy can consume everything it produces, or like a household, it can put some money aside and invest, invest in, in improving your house, or invest in your business into a new machinery, and the new machinery will then produce goods that you can sell, and it will generate the cash flow and so forth. And I think a lot of 
the discussion about the U.S. deficit simply blames foreign countries for either having manipulated their currencies or in the case of China for having stolen trade secrets and patents and so forth and so on. The fact is simply the U.S. became less and less competitive because, say, if you look at wages in Germany, they're much higher than in the United States. Yet German, the German economy is competitive. It can export cars and make money out of it. The problem is that U.S. products, with the exception of defense industries and some high-tech industries, are simply not very competitive around the world. That leads to the trade and current account deficit. And so you would attribute a lot of that then to overconsumption and not enough capital formation, I guess. Yes. If we look at, say, the expansion of the trade deficit after 2001, it had a lot to do with the overconsumption in the U.S., because at that time, consumption as a percent of the economy expanded by about uh, 10%. It went from roughly 70% to almost 80%. Since then, it's kind of slowed down this exponential or rapid growth in consumption as a percent of the economy. But it's still, of all the developed countries, at an extremely high level. And the level of capital spending, as you know, is not particularly strong because corporations, despite their huge earnings, are using these huge earnings to buy back shares yeah. and not buy new machinery. And they're using it also to pay dividends. But the buyback of shares is actually the crucial factor. The corporate sector should have an incentive to invest in plant and equipment and research and development. And that they're doing it, but not sufficiently. And so that all makes a lot of sense to me, Mark, the lack of capital formation. You know, you could just simply create money out of nothing and, and spread it out over the uh, to, throughout the economy, according to Keynes, deficit spending, and you just get rich that way, which seems to be, uh, you know, it's just it's sort of conventional wisdom. Everybody that takes Economics 101 is taught that in the U.S. Uh, but in any event, uh, Mark, there's another idea I'd like to run past you and get your ideas on it. Are you familiar with a term called the Triffin Dilemma? Yes. And so this holds out that a country that runs, uh, that has a reserve currency must necessarily run chronic trade deficits and export labor in order to make sure there's enough liquidity in that currency around the globe uh, to accommodate trade. Uh, do you think there's any... Any notion? I mean, if I look back at since 1971, look at a chart, and you'll see the U.S. has increasingly run trade deficits since that time. Do you give any credence to that notion uh, that if a world's reserve currency, if you have the world's reserve currency, you must necessarily import more than you export? No, it's not that you have to. If there is a country that has a reserve currency and it doesn't increase global liquidity, then you have less or no asset inflation. That is clear. Mm -hmm. And because you have a trade and current account deficit, you increase global liquidity. The global liquidity then leads to investments in other countries or to consumption in other countries or, and the combination thereof, this global liquidity somehow flows back into the reserve currency country like the U.S., mm -hmm. which has happened in the last, say, 20 years. 
the U.S. Uh, has run a trade and current account deficit, but the money has come back by foreigners in the form of purchases of securities of stocks and bonds, in particular, particularly bonds, treasuries. So these uh, these reserves that flow outside the U.S., they trigger, yes, some economic growth overseas. This is desirable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they also then create profits overseas. And these profits then flow back into the U.S. Uh, back into the U.S. through equities, primarily, you're saying. Uh, bonds, primarily yeah. through bonds. Yeah, so, but what in the meantime, though, we've seen this uh, the flyover country, the deplorables that Hillary Clinton talked about, that voted for Trump. They have become, you know, I know I'm from Ohio, and I know the scenario in Ohio. You have uh, a lot of, you know, hamburger flipping jobs. We used to have Youngstown and Cleveland and Akron, Canton, those places had high-paying manufacturing jobs. Those are all gone now. And people are now working at Walmart for twenty-five dollars or $35,000 a year, where they used to work maybe for $70,000. Those kind of jobs are gone. And, yes, we've seen Wall Street get richer. We've seen the welfare, warfare state, the people that are associated with those industries uh, in Washington that grows bigger and bigger. And yet the middle class, the people that produced, I would argue, the things that create wealth, those more capital-intensive businesses that you're talking about, manufacturing, mining, some of those basic industries have basically been gone from the U.S., and it seems to me what Trump is trying to do is to bring those back, and rightly or wrongly, he's seeking to do it, at least one of his major policy initiatives is tariffs. Now, what are your thoughts about that? If And if, if tariffs aren't going to work, and I don't believe they will, but if they're not, what should Trump or anyone do if they're concerned about the deplorables. Yes, that, that is a good point. First of all, uh, the so-called deplorables, and I hate to use this expression because uh, some people moved into an undesirable position in their lives and uh, they're not really at fault. Say, if you worked in a small town in a mill and the mill closes down, it will be difficult for you to find a job that is paying equally, so your standard of living is going down. But one of the problems, uh, first of all, to answer the first part of the question, I think tariffs are negative in the sense that they will actually increase the cost of living of these so-called people that are poor, Mm -hmm. that have difficulties to make ends meet. And we know that roughly 50% of households in the U.S., have practically no spare money mm-hmm. at the end of the month. They really live months by months and they have no savings. So to increase their cost of living, aside from the rents that went up, aside from health care that went up, aside from educational expenses that went up, would be undesirable. And I have to point out that a lot of these costs that went up a lot, uh, as I just pointed out, education, healthcare, uh, rents and so forth, are due to excessive regulation. And there I have to praise Trump. He is trying to reduce regulation. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and he's done so in a number of industries, but there's a long way to go. This uh, excessive regulations make actually the U.S., less competitive than other countries that have less regulation. You understand? Number two, uh, import tariffs will increase the cost of living of some people. Mm -hmm. 
And whether the steel industry will come back to the U.S., that is very questionable because it would require heavy capital expenditures. Right. And as I said, the corporate sector isn't really willing to undertake these capital expenditures. And it also then question, the question is then, does it make sense? Will these new steel mills really be productive? And as you know, I mean, you look at, as an example at the brewery. A hundred, hundred fifty years ago, a brewery employed maybe a thousand or two thousand people. Right. Or, or nowadays, you have breweries that have 20 employees. It's all automated. And so there it has been a huge structural shift in society whereby uh, many goods, including cars and car parts and so forth, are manufactured much more efficiently than before. Efficiently meaning the same quantity of goods or more goods are being produced with less and less people. You know, there are some structural issues. It's not just that the Chinese have lower wages and are stealing jobs. That is a simplification of the whole issue of the whole problem. And then we also have to look at the U.S. And by the way, I'm not singling out the U.S. in Europe. It's a similar situation. Many people make a better living by doing nothing than going to work. <laughs> you understand? Yep. And I suspect, and I know from a number of friends I have, say, in Switzerland, they get unemployment benefits. But they have, say, a side job somewhere where they're moonlighting. So they get... Uh, the benefits at the same time, they get some pocket money from occupations <laughs> which <laughs> they actually uh, don't pay any tax on it. Pay tax when they spend that money because then they pay sales taxes yeah. and so forth. But in general, uh, the whole social security system and transfer payment system by the government is actually discouraging people to work. Then in the U.S. in some states like New Hampshire uh, and also in uh, Massachusetts, we have some specific issues with drug problems. The opioid uh -huh. crisis yeah. is a real crisis. And in my opinion, the government is not totally innocent in this crisis. <laughs> and no the kidding. pharmaceutical okay. industry and so forth. And what I want to say is, a lot of people, maybe they could work if they were sober, <laughs> but they can't work because they're on drugs. They may not be every day 100% on drugs, but it's sufficiently bad that, say, in the trucking industry, you have difficulties to find drivers because a lot of people don't qualify to drive a truck. They are Ill, either drinking too much like Mr. Faber, or take <laughs> drugs, if you understand. So, of course, uh, some people are proposing then that we just simply give people a, a thousand bucks a month or whatever it takes. Don't require them to work anymore. What repercussions yes. would that have for society? Yes. Well, this is a huge debate uh, about this uh, basic income. And there are some pluses and minuses that uh, argue for this basic income. The plus side is basically you give someone a thousand dollars a month and that 
is just about, is not quite enough for him to survive, you understand? But with the thousand dollars, if he goes and works, he still gets the thousand dollars plus the new salary. That is the argument in favor of the basic income. If you have the present system, the moment someone goes to work, he abandons essentially all the things that he's getting now for free. In other words, it, it may not pay for him to work, uh, say if his compensation is about $25,000, because that's about what he would get if he doesn't work. So you understand the basic income idea is that someone who then goes to work does not incur a disadvantage. But oh. I'm against all these programs, and i tell you why. I think uh, all these programs lead to a colossal abuse. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> People will have all kinds of benefits, and the $1,000 uh, basic income, and so forth. You understand? Mm -hmm. The moment the government will run it, There'll be massive fraud. I mean, we have massive fraud already in elections. Sure. You can imagine when this will come about, uh, what the fraud level will be. And wealthy people like myself or Mr. Trump or whoever it is, they will also get the $1,000 as a word. So it, it, it's a very controversial uh, proposal. I basically, uh, not that I do... Uh, say, I have sympathy with certain aspects of socialism. But I have seen, uh, the first time I went to Eastern Europe, 1968, in Czechoslovakia, and later I went in 78 to China, and 1980 to Russia, and so forth. I've seen the complete misery and inequality and injustice that socialism and communism and the planning economy brings along. Uh, capitalism has many shortcomings, but we have to accept that, many shortcomings, uh, but it's a relatively fair system. The problem is that we superimposed on the free market and capitalism, essentially institutions that intervene into the free market like central bank and the money printing. We can show this statistically. The moment there is money printing, wealth and income inequality goes up. Right. That is should be very clear. But the Fed will say, well, that is not our problem. This is a problem of uh, fiscal policies redistribution, yeah, right. but it's not quite true. The problem is created by the Federal Reserve that prints money and other central banks, to be fair. No doubt about it. If you had a, a, an honest, let's say, asset-based monetary system that couldn't be created and printed and, you know, and created out of thin air, as the fiat money system is, that you would have discipline on that uh, uh, on the fiscal policy as well. It wouldn't be a matter of just, right. well, we just issue yeah. bonds and pay for it. Mark, with just a, not that many more minutes left here, I, I want to see if we can get to the uh, some of the existing markets. Uh, I have a, a good friend, uh, David Jensen. He's a very knowledgeable engineer, lawyer, Austrian economic thinker, who uh, was telling me the other day that something like $2 trillion has been borrowed by Chinese banks offshore, and then they've taken that $2 trillion and lent it into the domestic economy in China, and his concerns are that as uh, the dollar has gotten stronger over the last 
I don't know, a couple of months or so. It's, it's raised something like 5% against the yuan, and uh, interest rates are rising. His concern is that we could see a very significant illiquidity a problem, and then you add to that Trump's tariffs. You know, you live in that part of the world. You have your finger on the pulse better than most of us over here in America, I would dare say. Uh, what are your thoughts currently about the vulnerability uh, or some sort of a maybe like an Asian type 1998 crisis that could occur again? Uh, a dollar shortage, if you will, a dollar a dollar illiquidity. If Trump starts to do the opposite, in other words, decreases uh, global trade, uh, in at, at the same time the interest rates are rising, the dollar is getting stronger. Are you concerned about this right now? Yes, uh, I'm deeply concerned about uh, the the Chinese economy. Because the Chinese economy nowadays is much more important than the U.S. economy because its manufacturing sector is so large. And don't forget, China consumes, let's not exaggerate, but approximately 50% of all industrial commodities are used in China. So the Chinese economy has a huge impact on all the raw material producers, on the commodity producers of the world. And of course, the Chinese economy also imports a lot of goods, Mm -hmm. luxury goods, but also capital goods and raw materials. So the impact of a slowdown in the Chinese economy, or possibly, as David Jensen says, a recession or a collapse, uh, that has to be a factor to be taken into serious consideration. I mean, a lot of people have called for the collapse of the Chinese economy for a long time, yeah, and it hasn't happened. But it is true that the debt level in China has expanded over the last 10 years more than any other country mm-hmm. in the last 200 years has had a credit expansion. So it's a very unusual situation, and not only China, but a lot of other countries today, emerging economies, they're highly indebted, and a slowdown in economic activity or a tightening of global liquidity. And the symptom of global liquidity of tightening is a strong dollar. Mm-hmm. Whenever global liquidity tightens, the dollar is strong. And when it, uh, it expands again, uh, when you have global liquidity expanding, then you have a weak dollar. But as you said, the Trump policies, uh, basically, they are uh, indirectly contracting global liquidity. And so the outlook for emerging markets at the present time is not particularly good. Now, having said all this, you see, as an investor, you look at all these macro factors and so forth, and the objective is basically to know, should I own stocks? Should I own real estate? Should I own bonds? Or should I own cash? And so forth. So you then have to decide what you own. The problem is that cash is maybe the most dangerous thing to own. Uh, why, why do you say that, Mark? Because traditionally we've always thought what cash is, it doesn't give you any yield, or not much in this market anyway. Uh, yes. But if I want to own, if I want to own treasuries right now, I get your point. If you uh, do, you see a, do you see the bond bull market that began in the nineteen? Well, let's say with during the Reagan years. Do you see that as being over now? Yes. The bull market in bonds on treasuries began on September twenty first, nineteen eighty one. That was the high point of interest rates 
And since then, we've been largely in a bull market for bonds. Some will say until July 2016, when yields on the 10 years Treasury hit 1.38%. Uh, and since then, they've kind of doubled the yields on the 10 years. So you could argue the bull market is finished. But maybe there is an extension of the bull market and maybe interest rates won't go up a lot. But you understand, if you look back at the last 30 years, if you held cash, the purchasing power of that cash in terms of the real estate you can buy, in terms of paintings you can buy, in terms of antique cars you can buy, in terms of the stock market, 1981, the stock market was below a 1,000. It dropped to 780 on the Dow Jones in August 82. And since then, it's been going up and you had all the dividends on the Dow. So you, you understand by holding cash, you may lose a, a tremendous amount of purchasing power over time. Normally, it's old ladies that put all their money into cash that die poor. People who become wealthy, they own some kind of assets, either real estate or equities or something that has a higher yield uh, or return than cash in the long run. So I'm saying cash could be dangerous. Then you have to decide what currency. You know, if you look at cash and you say, okay, in U.S. dollars now, I guess say maybe two and a half percent interest uh, per annum, then you might ask yourself, well, maybe it would be better to hold that cash in the form of gold. You understand? So over the next 10 years, uh, at 2.5% interest, uh, you would earn, say, around, with compound interest, around 30% on your money. But I think the price of gold over the next 10 years has a chance to go up much more than 30%. No doubt about that. Well, we're just about out of uh, out of time here now, Mark. Um, so but we're living in a very dangerous world right now with a dollar, I think, uh, and what's going on with China in, uh, building up its gold reserves, encouraging its population to get gold, a Chinese government that would like to get from out from under the U.S. dollar, hegemony, Russia, China coming together, the dollar, and, and we're seeing, you know, Trump's, tr- uh, Trump's deficits of uh, one, over a trillion dollars, the Federal Reserve pulling money out of the system now, downsizing its balance sheet. I would argue the shortages that we have in the United States, that is the to fund the enormous deficits we're running with and foreign countries not as willing as they once were to buy treasuries, that we might be in for a lot of pain ahead of us with rising interest rates potentially. Uh, does that bring about then more massive printing to try to get out ahead and keep rates from rising and try to provide a liquidity? To me, there's so many unanswerable questions. Yes. So yes. given given this uncertainty, Mark, with a with a, with a minute left, what are you doing? You know, you're a man of, of some means who doesn't have to worry about your next meal. But uh, for people of say more average means and that have some savings but aren't aren't destitute like the like the deplorables, what should they do? Well, I mean, one investment that I think is never discussed is education. Uh-huh. I think it's very important for people to have a good education, and by that I don't necessarily mean to be a university teacher or, you know, a rocket scientist. But I think if you are a carpenter, you can be a good carpenter or just an average carpenter. And if you're an electrician, you can be an excellent electrician or just a very normal electrician and so forth and so on. So there are lots of opportunities. The problem in the U.S., you have less of an apprentice system than we have in Europe. And in Europe, 
we have a lot of uh, so-called vocational schools. These are schools. They are like universities, but you just specialize in, say, uh, carpenting or in electrical engineering stuff and so forth and yeah. so on. So we have actually, and this comes back to the first question you asked, you know, what to do about uh, the trade deficit. One of the issues in Germany and in Switzerland, we have a relatively highly educated workforce. And the same happens in Japan uh, when the Japanese left the Olympic Village, their uh, changing room, in other words, where the team was preparing for the matches, uh-huh. were left 100% clean. Everybody was stunned <laughs> that one team would clean up everything and leave it in perfect condition. Ah. And this is what I'm always arguing. When people say everybody's the same. No, not oh. everybody's the same. Some people are tidy and some people are less tidy. Yeah. And some people are very conscientious and let others less. And I think education of your children or even yourself is very important. You should never stop learning something. And I think the asset markets, you will not make a lot of money unless you take huge risks. You understand? There was a huge opportunity in cryptocurrencies. I didn't participate. I'm saying there are opportunities, but there are also large risks. And the timing has to be perfect. I would just diversify. I would hold some real estate where I live, certainly. And I would hold some equities in case they really print money like there is no tomorrow, sure. which is not totally unlikely. And I would hold some physical precious metals. And now gold shares are relatively cheap. So, but it's a high risk profile. Well, that's uh, we'll have to leave it go at that, Mark. I thank you so much for being willing to spend the time. I mean, I'm talking to you at one o'clock in the morning in Thailand. Uh, it's so gracious of you to give us your time. I really appreciate your well, work. I've you. always done so. Uh, thank and, you uh, and I and I hope we can do it again sometime in the not too distant yes. future. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. Folks, that's Thank all the time uh, we have this week. Next week, John Rubino will be my guest and uh, Michael Oliver as well, so I hope you'll tune in then. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Montero Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. 
entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.